0: We're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The Hawaii Invasive Species Council is prepping its latest progress report on the Hawaii Interagency Biosecurity Plan. The update will mark the halfway point in the original timeline for a 10-year plan. The conversation. Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Chelsea Arnott, a planner with the Hawaii Invasive Species Council. She says the council and its partners hit the ground running with the plan in 2017, but the pandemic has left them treading water. Yeah, I
1: mean, the pandemic has affected everyone in every sector, and including the implementation of the biosecurity plan. Uh, and I would say capacity is, is just one of the biggest aspects of that impact. Last year's legislative session um, was similar to what happened in 2008. It, we had vacant positions across our state departments Um, And many of those vacant positions were either frozen or they were eliminated. So the theme for the legislator during that time is just trying to maintain what we already had and making sure those key positions didn't get lost. And I can't speak for the other state agencies, but my program, the Hawaii Mesa Species Council, is administered under the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And During 2020, our coordinator position was vacated. So we had a vacancy at our council, and we had to make sure that that position was saved during the 2020 legislative session. Um, And it was, and we were able to keep hold of that, but at the expense of the salary comes out of our state operational funds. So that just means we have a little less funding to support our projects going forward because it's going towards salaries. And we're hoping that we can reinstate that position and get the salary for it. And, and that's kind of the case for a lot of the state agencies, just trying to get those vacancies back and get them refunded. As things open up and there's more funding uh, that we can build capacity and start moving some of these actions forward. Uh, but right now, it's you know we're just trying to maintain what we
2: have. One of the things that these progress reports often focus on is the economic costs of the importation of invasive species. And I looked at these numbers and they're really just shocking. Can you <laughs> can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the economic detriment to importing species, both on our ag economy and on other aspects of our economy? I
1: just saw a new study this year that gave the global cost of managing biological invasions is on the higher end of uh, $163 billion per year. So that's a staggering number. And when we focus on island ecosystems, invasive species are the number one driver of
3: species extinction.
1: So there are major problems to island ecosystems and prevention, for one preventing things before they get to Hawaii, and then really upping the ability at our ports of entry to detect and control and stop pests at those ports of entry. A big example of that is brown tree snake. right? We don't have that here yet. And it's amazing, and it's a testament to the work of our Hawaii Department of Agriculture and our federal partners that are working at those pre-border and border areas. If brown tree snake got to Hawaii, it could over $2 billion per year in damages to the economy. And that doesn't factor in the cost to the impact to our natural resources. In Guam, where the brown tree snake has been for, I mean, over 50 years, I mean, it has decimated their native biota. It's wiped out over half of their native birds and lizards. And that is a huge impact on the ecosystem and the ecosystem functions over there. And that's not even factored into that $2 billion economic cost. And prevention is hard, right? It's hard to get people excited about prevention. It's not sexy because you don't see it. Um, But it is one of the biggest aspects of biosecurity. And it's cost effective to keep these pests out before they come in.
2: One of the things in the plan that has not yet received funding or has not yet started, that was in that initial Hawaii interagency biosecurity plan, is an emergency response fund for biosecurity. Can you talk a little bit more about what this fund, or what sum this fund would contain, and how it would be used?
1: That's a great one, because I think when I was introduced the biosecurity plan it it was one of the actions that really stood out for me also as we really need this because you're right new pest incursions and a lot of our programs and state agencies I mean they're already really tight budgeted and can't take on much more so it'd be really helpful to have something like a rapid response fund or emergency response fund that we could pull from to help these agencies respond better and faster when it comes to the institution because um, funding is the crux of the problem so the emergency response fund this was actually introduced to the legislature i think, in 2018 and again in 2019 and it didn't make it through and in that bill what they were proposing is a million dollars put into a rapid response fund Fund would be allocated by the Hawaii Invasive Species Council, um, and I didn't talk about our council, but it is comprised of six state departments. It's co-chaired by the chair from the Department of Land and Natural Resources and the Hawaii Department of Agriculture. Um, so this council would be ultimately the decision body looking at how to dispense these funds. Um, so, if there were multiple pest incursions that happened within a given year, you probably need to be some prioritizing that would happen within the council. And the council would then send their recommendation to the governor for final approval. So, that's how it was written in the bill language, um, but it never went through. And, you know, we were trying to do some form of this within our own HISP budget meaning we just wanted to put uh, emergency funding aside in our own HIST budget that we get from the legislature every year that could be used to help programs um, with funding when there's new pest incursions. But I think that what you're hitting on, there, there's still a need to be able to have some money set aside to rapidly respond to new pest incursions. We use this graph that shows... The, the yearly economic cost is certain invasive species are either introduced or spread compared to the yearly cost of if we move forward with implementing every action identified in the biosecurity plan, that on a yearly basis across 10 years is $38 million per year. And and that's just a drop in the bucket, like you said, compared to something like brown tree snakes coming and establishing in Hawaii, or little fire ant establishing across the state, or Myconia spreading throughout all of our watersheds and wiping out our native ecosystems and causing hydrologic damage and damaging, you know, our main source of drinking water across the state. Yeah, it's just a drop in the bucket.
0: That was Chelsea Arnott with the Hawaii Invasive Species Council speaking with the Conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote. For more information on the latest biosecurity plan update, visit our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at high-tech ag as a way to help us become more resilient as a community. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So you got wind of a couple of companies that are uh, starting up uh, with some interesting ideas on how to approach ag.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Technology is, you know, starting to change how we grow food um, as technology has changed how we do so many things that we do and, and some of these technologies are not new but they're now being used a little bit more wi- widely even here in Hawaii um, and you know I think one of the bigger more exciting projects on the horizon is a company based in Florida it's called Calera it's an indoor vertical farming company they grow leafy greens all indoors so, You know artificial sunlight they're using um, uh, creating basically a a, um, totally artificial climate that is really optimal for for growing food and so they uh, have their uh, sights set on coming to Oahu Um, they're currently leasing a 15,000 square foot warehouse in Koolina and they are planning to start growing leafy greens indoors um, by mid next year is what they're hoping
0: yeah, and uh, we've uh, done stories before where we, I think on Lanai, where they've got uh, Sensei Ag doing uh, some experimental, uh, I guess, high-tech ag over there on that island.
3: Yeah, Sensei Ag, you know, that that's about a three-year-old company, and they're using these high-tech greenhouses to produce lots and lots of food. Uh, so there's different ways to do this. It doesn't have to be all indoors. Um, but really what these, these high-tech ag systems allow for is a lot of efficiencies. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to use things like pesticides. You are able to deliver water and nutrients directly to the root of a plant. So you're not dealing with um, so much water waste. You know, the water isn't being evaporated as it as happens when you're watering plants that are growing in the ground. Um, so there are other efficiencies that can happen. You're able to have a more consistent product. You're not having to worry about an insect infestation, you know, ruining your crop. Um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, benefits, a lot of values that can be tapped into with some of these higher-tech systems.
0: Well, you know, these high-tech, uh, uh, you know, vertical farms, though, I mean, it, it does require some investment up front. It
3: does. There's a huge cost to getting these programs up and running. Uh, a huge initial investment, which you know makes it hard for a lot of farmers to even think about uh, getting one of these systems started. You know, in Hawaii, most farmers are small farmers, and the kind of capital that you would need to to do some of these projects is is just out of reach at this point. Um, the other thing is that a lot of these projects have high energy costs. Of course, we have the highest energy prices uh, here in, in Hawaii, uh, of anywhere in the nation. So when you're when you're creating these optimal growing environments, you're you're using energy, um, and and that's kind of a persistent operating cost that that can be quite high.
0: What about water?
3: Well, the good thing is a lot of these companies say that they really don't need to use that much water. Um, I think Calera says they're using about 3% of what uh, they would need to use if they were growing traditionally in the ground. Uh, and then say, I think they say they use about 5% of the water that they would need if they were growing conventionally. Um, so there's a lot of savings to be had when it comes to water. And that's going to be a big deal um, increasingly with, with climate change and how that's going to affect farming. Um, being able to use so much less water is going to have huge advantages.
0: So how does the Farm Bureau uh, look at this um, newfangled stuff?
3: I think that they, you know, any new farming venture, any um, new way to, to grow local food, I think they're really excited about. I think, you know, the, the one hesitation is just the fact that the, the cost of entry here can be so high, um, right? I mean, we've got this company from Florida coming in and um, building what will be the state's biggest vertical farm. You've got you know sensei ag of course they're backed by larry ellison so there's a lot of dollars behind some of these projects and it it can be just harder for some of our farmers to, to get in
0: yeah but uh we obviously need those small farmers uh in a big way like we saw with the pandemic that we just really need to uh be able to be more sustainable and not rely so much on imports uh, And and
3: traditional farming isn't going away. I mean, you can't grow everything in this way. So this could just be a compliment. I don't think that there's going to be
0: competition. All right. Okay, well, thanks so much, Brittany.
3: Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
4: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai, O Lana, O Mau, Hawaii.
0: In today's quiz, we're looking for the name of a 19th century seafaring vessel that came to a spectacular end off Diamond Head. The year was 1834, and the ship was en route to the islands carrying a very valuable cargo. Uh, It was carrying 1,400 barrels of whale oil. Unfortunately, a fierce storm erupted, so the whaler was prevented from reaching the port of Lahaina, Maui. The captain made a tough decision to head for Oahu instead, and this proved to be a very difficult task with the crew navigating towards Honolulu in darkness and rain with no lighthouses to guide the way. Shortly after midnight on November 10th, the whaler hit a reef off Diamond Head. As soon as dawn broke, rescue vessels were sent out, and about 500 barrels of oil were salvaged and floated off the ship, but the vessel itself remained stuck on the reef for two months. For today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the name of this unfortunate whaling ship? Call 941 3689 or 877 941 3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
5: J'ai les draps sur ton corps. Peur que tu aies froid. Je sais pas si tu dors quand tu es loin de moi. Il suffirait que l'on apprenne. Faut-il encore qu'on se pardonne? Je peux revivre tes peines et t'aimer si tu m'aimes, mais pas reprendre ce que je te donne.
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nereadhawaii.com.
5: Run to the end, and in the end it's over, you hold on to my head.
0: Many hotel workers left in limbo as they deal with the September slump. Following Labor Day, Local 5 Unite Here says members began seeing their hours cut and the downturn comes as there are fewer resources to bail out those who are struggling. Uh, HPR's Casey Harlow joins us today. Good morning.
7: Morning, Catherine. Yes, uh, today's story was definitely about what uh, hotel workers are going through at this moment. Uh, we are seeing at Unite Here, Local 5 says that uh, they were er- Able to get about 67% of its members, roughly about 6,000 people, uh, back to work in the height of uh, kind of the summer season when there was a lot of uh, domestic travelers coming to the islands. Uh, Right about now, they say about 30% of their workers are still there. Uh, So a lot of uh, furloughs or uh, have their hours cut. And I spoke with Joy uh, Melagrito, who has worked at the Kahala, and just to tell her side of the story as well. But uh, August... um, they they say that uh, it was primarily because of uh, Governor David Ige's, uh announcement or his uh, urging domestic travelers not to come at this time. Right about the time when you know we were seeing a skyrocketing cases and new reported COVID cases and uh, hospitalizations at that time. And I've spoken to several business owners who said you know that pretty much uh, took their main business, uh, half of their business. Um, tourism is a huge here in the islands obviously and you see that ripple out effect and that obviously is affecting workers at this time
0: yeah i mean that scared a lot of people off from from traveling uh we did see early on i think mike uh mayor mike victorino kind of you know say the same thing right like uh can you not travel here right now because we're kind of overwhelmed
7: right right and uh yeah as far as like what we can see as Uh, Right now, hotel performance, the Hawaii Tourism Authority released their August stats, and obviously the August stats uh, aren't uh, indicative of the true impact. We'll have to wait till next month to see what exactly uh, the impact of Governor David Ige's um, announcement was. But so far from August, uh, hotel occupancy was lower, but uh, revenue per available room, this is like the big measure for hotels of like how much money that they're making per room was 7% higher than August 2019 so obviously there was you know a huge boom there but again ho- hotel occupancy was lower uh hotels on average saw 73% occupancy at that time and if you want to even go further out um vacation rentals saw 74% we'll get the visitor arrivals sometime later this week and yeah uh, we are seeing that local 5 uh, members uh Local 5 says they haven't been able to get all their members back, and either that's because some hotels, they say, have been cutting departments, have been cutting uh, areas where people have been working. And there's also the chance that, you know, Local 5 members have, you know, just said, you know what, we're going to try something else because we need the money now.
0: Yeah, and and we saw how uh, there are some hotel chains that that still are not back to daily cleaning of the rooms.
7: Right, right. And so uh, Joy uh, has been put on an on-call schedule so she's uh, she used to have a little bit more of a full-time schedule where she could work and that helped her out a lot she has a husband who also got his uh, hours cut and you know it was a very rough time last year for as with a lot of people where uh, they were worried about making rent uh, getting behind on their bills not sure if they could put enough food on the table uh, for their family and so um, yeah we're gonna see that um, a lot of people haven't been able to um, get put back to work, working full time, and you know, a couple days a week, even though they get called in, it's not enough to kind of make ends meet. And so this is kind of a very interesting time because uh, the federal unemployment assistance ran out, and we're not, and Local 5 members are calling for, um, you know, the government, the state leaders to extend benefits.
8: I'm really hoping for the, the government to extend or sign a law for unemployment benefit insurance so we can pay our bills. Hopefully they're gonna listen to us because it's really hard not getting the payment or extension for unemployment we, because we don't have any resources to, get,
3: to pay for our bills.
7: And uh, as we're seeing with the shoulder season, uh, I looked back to see what unemployment rate looked like right around this time period. For 2019, 2018, 2017, it hovered right around 2%. August is still 7%, so still we're still feeling the impacts of the pandemic as well. So,
0: Yeah, I know, and, and the union said that it kind of drew down its emergency fund to provide assistance to its workers. Uh, hopefully, some of these workers will apply for rental assistance Because those programs are still going, but
7: right, exactly, and there's still plenty of um, opportunities for people in the other counties. I believe Kauai is really pushing that as well. But Honolulu, uh, Joy has said that she uh, feels, you know, she doesn't know. It's not a guaranteed thing because the city caps its uh, window, and it takes time to process applications. And obviously, you know, that's time that they don't necessarily have or need, especially with that concern uh, of, like, looming over their heads, of not having uh, rent or, you know, paying for their electric bills. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you.
0: We have been talking to H.B.A.R.'s Casey Harlow. Find his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org.
6: Support for HPR comes from the virtual 16th annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival, presenting Makana in concert at Kauai'a'au, noon Saturday, October 2nd. Schedule at hawaiibookandmusicfestival.com.
9: Aloha, this is Derek Malama. And after 19 years on the air, I'm passing along the reins of Kani Kapila Sunday. It's been an honor to share all of this wonderful Hawaiian music with you. But the good news is that Luis K. King Lanzalotti will be stepping in to host the show. So keep listening every Sunday afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m. right here on HBR 1.
0: that here in Hawaii one person dies from suicide every two days. This month happens to be National Suicide Prevention Month. Uh, the Conversations Lillian Song sat down with the State Department of Health Prevention Coordinator, Renee Yu, who underscores the importance of being aware and prepared during these COVID times where life stressors abound.
8: Suicide is a very complex issue and a lot of times, for whatever reason it is, Suicide is presented as a one-factor issue, is this person got a divorce, therefore that person died of suicide. And that is very far from the truth. Really many factors go into it. And so when you think about prevention strategies, it's actually a lot more broader than we can think of. So it's suicide prevention by having housing stability policies. It's suicide prevention by people having good health insurance, kind of during the pandemic and access to telehealth appointments those are suicide prevention how to promote the safe house campaign promoting self care supportive work culture promoting kindness parenting skills parenting support crisis support sharing resources providing the right type of information to people all those things are suicide prevention so When it comes to suicide prevention, there's many little things that we can do. Just noticing each other, ask the question. This is one of the myths that I would like to debunk today. Asking somebody if they're thinking about suicide, if they're thinking about killing themselves, would not cause them to die from suicide. So sometimes just ask point blank that question and stay with them. No local resources, for example, having Hawaii CARES the number, and listen, really, when people are sharing their stories, and listen
9: with intent.
8: All these are very, very helpful, but it really is a very complex response.
9: Well, you know, in polite society, you would not think to ask the question, but what I'm hearing you say is that we basically have to be blunt if we notice something. We have to listen with intent with what the other person is saying, and then we have to to just ask that question.
8: Yes, absolutely. Ask that person, are you thinking about killing yourself? Is not going to cause anyone to die from suicide. And you mentioned that we're in a polite society. So obviously, you know, there are different ways of asking that question. Hmm. But I just want to take the anxiety off of people. Um, that is not a cause for suicide. Many other factors lead to a person's struggle um, seeing that level of pain. So if we can educate ourselves on that topic, I think it would really save a lot of life.
9: And you mentioned Hawaii Cares as a resource. Elaborate more on that.
8: Yes. So suicide is preventable, and the support is definitely available. Hawaii Cares is a 24-hour crisis hotline. It's one 800 Seven five three six eight seven nine, 753-6879, and it's not just a suicide crisis hotline. And you don't have to be in crisis to call that number either, and it's at no cost to you or anyone. So you can call if you have struggling with opioid issues or if you're struggling with alcohol issues. During COVID crisis, actually, you can call Hawaii Care for COVID-related issues. So it's really a great local resource that's also tagged into the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So it's something that we're hoping to get out there to as many people as possible, to educate people on what this is for and to encourage people to utilize resources.
9: During these, these times of COVID where depression, isolation and anxiety has all been heightened mm-hmm. during this pandemic appreciate your pointing out that suicide is not a one-factor issue. In fact, if you know someone going through housing hardship or who's struggling with health insurance, all these different factors can pile up.
8: Yes, notice each other, support each other, and ask the questions. Don't be afraid. Educate yourself on the resources that's out there. And an average suicidal crisis actually lasts about four minutes according to national data. So if something that can be done during that time, it could be a life that could be saved. And whatever we can do to kind of get to the next window, that's a success. That's a life that's saved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, general kindness. Kindness is suicide prevention. And it's so true and sounds very simple, but it takes a lot of practice to do, especially... During this COVID time, we were all very stressed out and pushed to our limits. And, um, and you know, keeping your house safe. So there are also other local resources. In the spirit of Suicide Prevention Month, for example, our local um, chapter, the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, they have a lot of great resources on their website. And also NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Health, Mental Health of America, the Hawaii chapter, and also Prevent Suicide Hawaii Task Force. There are a lot of good partners in suicide prevention here in Hawaii, and everybody's working towards the same goal to raise awareness, to spread hope, and get the resources out there for people. So there is a lot of hope and a lot of support out there, and we just want to make sure that we can get that. To the right people. So suicide prevention starts at every aspect of our life. We can all take part in it, and not just in September, but all year round.
9: Mm-hmm. But as this is National Suicide Prevention Month, you're stepping up to share your expertise, your network, to help others in the community know that they are not alone, there are resources and you're making it as accessible as possible.
8: Yes, you're definitely not alone, and there are many great people in the states that are working really hard to get the words out there to work on resources. So support is available, and hopefully we can reach as many people with those resources as possible. Suicide is preventable. I learned this at a training. The presenter said that When it comes to suicide, it's never about death. It's about finding reasons for people to live.
0: That was the conversation's Zillian Song and the State Health Department Suicide Prevention Coordinator, Renee Yu. 24-7 help is available during these COVID times. Call Hawaii CARES at 1-800-753-6879 or reach the crisis text line by sending home to 741741. Statewide events calling attention to this issue continue through the end of the month. We'll share links on our page at hawaiipublicradio.org after the show. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You know, scientists are closer to tracking down the mysterious Planet 9, the large, icy planet that they believe lives on the outer regions of our solar system. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for today's Monday Stargazer.
5: Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot in our dark skies. And as usual, we are fortunate to have the skills of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this
4: week's stargazers, Venus can be seen in the west shortly after sunset, with Jupiter and Saturn visible in the southern and eastern skies. The moon this week is passing through its last quarter phase, which of course means a return of dark skies and perfect conditions for stargazing. Now,
5: I don't know if those conditions are going to help us as we have one of Chris's favorite topics this week, the return of
4: Planet Nine. (laughs) Yeah, every now and then on Stargazer, we revisit this intriguing topic, the hunt for the elusive Planet Nine. The epicenter of this cosmic quest is right here in Hawaii. Astronomers are using the Hyper Supreme cam at the Subaru Telescope atop at Mauna Kea and have been scouring the dark outer reaches of the solar system for several years in the hopes of finding clues to this elusive Planet 9. As it turns out, they could be close to finally tracking down this mysterious cosmic wanderer. And if they haven't found it yet, explain what they've been looking for. Well, the team has actually been studying frozen asteroids known as Kuiper Belt objects. These are located far from the sun and their orbits can tell us a great deal about whether there is a large planet hiding out there in the dark. And they're good to study because these objects are affected by gravity. Indeed. If there is a large planet out there, then models suggest that its gravitational field will perturb the orbits of small asteroids and the like. The team has gathered compelling evidence that the patterns they have seen in the orbits of these objects suggest that Planet 9 is indeed out there.
5: And with it being so dark and
4: space so big, how can they locate this thing? Well, by observing enough of these objects and studying their distribution in space, astronomers hope that the patterns that they will observe can point them to where to look for Planet 9. However, this is a very long process, and we may have to wait until powerful new telescopes come online to finally answer this question.
5: How about that Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile, Chris? I'm just going out on a limb, but what do you think about that one? (laughs) It's a good candidate.
4: (laughs) Vera will be capable of scouring the sky every night and will be able to detect extremely faint objects at vast distances from the sun it is almost certainly going to revolutionize the map of the solar system as we know it and may well prove to be the final tool we need to track down planet nine and the good news is vera will come online in 2024
5: well here's to vera huh indeed (laughs) it's christopher phillips another fun report here and uh thank you brother you are welcome dave i'm dave lawrence we'll catch you next week with stargazer which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org Support for Stargazer
6: comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com.
0: Today's Backyard Quiz asked you for the name of a 19th century whaling vessel that hit a reef off Diamond Head back in 1834. It was transporting hundreds of barrels of whale oil when it ran aground while trying to navigate around Oahu in the dark. It was originally destined for Lahaina, but forced to sail for Honolulu after encountering a fierce storm off Maui. The ship was one of four vessels built by French shipbuilder Stephen Girard, who built ships named after French philosophers like Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Rousseau each ship was adorned with a hand-carved figurehead of the philosopher it was named for and when the remains of this wrecked ship were salvaged its figurehead was never found so if you're ever scuba diving off diamond head be on the lookout you might encounter the detached head of the long forgotten french philosopher helvetius the name of the ship and the answer to today's backyard quiz and it would be a marine archaeologist who would know the answer to that. Congratulations to Hans van Tilburg for getting it right. If you have an idea for a Beckard quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling
7: 808-207-7634. They say classical music has the power to heal, to boost creativity, or make you more productive. Some even think it makes you smarter. One thing's for certain, classical music makes you feel good. And it's waiting for you on HPR 2, your home for classical music. Catch performances right here in the islands and from around the world. Tune in on your radio, our mobile app, or on your smart speaker.
0: Today we highlight an opportunity for budding musicians. Want a chance to perform with the Camuela Philharmonic Orchestra? Take a listen as Sylvastian Swan took his place on stage playing violin in spring from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Sebastian was just 12 years old at the time. And the opportunity to be part of the orchestra is opening this season. The deadline for the competition is about a month away. Auditioning remotely for our young people has never been so easy, so says maestro Brian Dolinger, who is in to his sixth season as conductor for the Big Island Philharmonic Orchestra. He's a busy man. He divides his time between here and the mainland, where he conducts two other orchestras. It's wonderful
10: that we have a young artist competition every year, and what's actually different with this competition than my orchestras on the mainland, is there are three winners for three different age categories. So I've actually had winners that were eight years old performing with the Philharmonic all the way to 18. And it's really been a wonderful experience to work with such young artists, but they're really good even at eight, nine years old. I've been really impressed by the education that these students have been getting by their private teachers. And because of COVID, this coming Masterwork season with the Philharmonic, we actually have two concerts that are dedicated to our young artists. Our first concert which is on october 3rd will be last year's winners who are a couple of pianists and then this year our competition winners will be in held on the january performance Um, so we'll have a lot of youth um, on stage with us this year
0: well that's terrific and so if uh, there are young people out there that want to give it a shot uh, what do they have to do
10: well the wonderful thing um i guess you could say about of COVID is the ease in which they can audition for the orchestra um, in prior years, we would hold auditions on the Big Island and in September and for a small audience of family, other players, and board members with a panel of judges, and we'd find the winners that way. But last year and this year, this coming competition, it's, uh, it's being held virtually. And so they will have until uh, October 29th upload video links for me, and I will give them to judges, and then we will um, have them judged that way. And so on the Philharmonic website, which is uh, um, comewithafil.org, um, they can find uh, a link that talks about all the competition information, applications, and all that sort of thing. Um, and so we've had students from across the island um, um, compete with us, which has just been really fantastic.
0: And so how long do these uh, segments, you know, have to be uh, when they send in their material?
10: Oh, sure. Uh, basically, we only have a length limit. So um, it's up to 15 minutes. They could be four to five minutes. They, they average usually around 10 or 11 depending on the piece. Um, Two years ago, we had a cello piece that pushed the envelope of the 15 minutes. Um, But it's all, if we keep them within that range and we make sure that we can, each student has the the same amount of time opportunity for them. And um, it's really exciting to see them find their own with the preparation for the auditions, but also for the winners when they get on stage for the first time with an orchestra and hearing the sound and you can see them like, like, wow, I'm on stage with an orchestra. It's incredible. Um, so it's it's really I love this part of being a conductor is working with the youth and being part of their first experiences with an orchestra. Um, this year with the Philharmonic, um, they rotate uh, instruments as far as who's the focus. This year is strings. Um, last year was winds, brass, and pian- uh, piano. So this year we'll be focusing on string the string family. So string students from eight years old through 18 um, who are ready with a concerto of some sort. Um, can go to the website and apply and send us some videos.
0: And so, gosh, you know, I mean, with COVID, I know it's it's probably opened up doors. Uh, I have a friend whose daughter auditioned for uh, ABT and got to do Great. a summer workshop, you know. Uh, and, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's just in her own little garage in Hawaii Kai, but um, was, you know, just loved the experience.
10: Well, I think that's one of the silver linings of all this bad stuff with COVID is because um, organizations around the world have had to pivot to be becoming more virtual. And whether it's just the auditions or even the full concert experiences or master classes, uh, master teachers and universities and festivals have had to figure out a way they'll be able to have their events, be able to reach musicians and audiences. um, have had to figure that out with electronics and technology. And what's amazing is The arts have really done a fantastic job um, utilizing technology to be able to stream um, performances like the Philharmonic has, or even have live streaming uh, masterclasses with master teachers from around the world. So I think it's really opened up a whole nother part of fine art and reaching deeper in the communities. One of the things I'm looking forward to with our performance on October 3rd is the Kehulu Theater um, up in Waimea, where is our concert home. They, through COVID, upgraded all of their technologies. They have 4K cameras a fantastic sound recording system and their own streaming capabilities. And so on Kahilu.tv is where our concert on October 3rd will be because um, we've had restrictions back on the island, and so we can't have an audience. But we were given approval to stream our concert. So what that does, even though we as musicians and artists feed off of the energy of an audience, now with the streaming – we can actually reach not only the whole big island all the way down to Volcano and Hilo, but also the whole Hawaii island and even beyond for people on the mainland or in other countries who might be subscribing to Hilo TV can actually see the Philharmonic performance. That, to me, I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about the, the reach that we can have using technology. I think it's really incredible.
0: And, you know, there's something about sparking a child's interest, you know, and their mm-hmm. passion. Uh, I just happened to catch something, oh, gosh, I think it was on 60 Minutes this past month about a conductor who, you know, he knew from, you know, when he was so high that he wanted to be there conducting. And it was just mm-hmm. a wonderful story right. when, you, when you see that spark just ignite.
6: Well, that's,
10: that's, that, that is so true. And like I said, working with these particular students is a spark, I see. But then um, when we've done education concerts and bust in students, up in Waimea, many of them, it's the first time they've ever seen these instruments, many times they ever heard an orchestra, and maybe, hopefully you can tell by my energy about music, I feed off of kids. I love working with kids. I have a nine-year-old of my own, and so I can really interact with them, and hearing their energy and excitement. I remember we did a Beethoven um, performance because of his birthday, and I was teaching them about Beethoven, and of course, we do part of Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5, and just those first four notes, hear the kids go wow and hearing that energy and excitement you know it's really what I love to hear what I love to see that reaction from the kids and it will be memorable I remember in grade school going to see the big symphony orchestra and being wowed by it not knowing I'd become a conductor someday or a string bass player but just that experience so each and every time I perform that's what I'm I, I remember is that somebody is getting inspired or touched in a way they've never been before in their lives. And to me, having that ability as a conductor and a musician is, is the world. It's so amazing.
0: And so if there are uh, some young musicians out there, then oh, what do you want to say to them?
10: I want them, I want them to check out the Philharmonic um, online. I want them to um, reach out through technology and find their inspiration for whatever kind of music that they love. Um, I want them to also know... If they play an instrument, they don't have to be a professional. It's Most of us who are in music, yes, making money in a career is amazing, but we do it because we love music. It inspires us. It is something that we share with family, with friends, with other people. It really is an international language, and when you find that, it could be on ukulele. I've heard (laughs) some amazing children at some schools I've visited playing and singing with the ukulele. That is absolutely phenomenal and i just want students to embrace music not be embarrassed by it and just know that it will always be there for them no matter when where they are in their life and it is just a truly magical experience
0: and is there anything that's different about the hawaii orchestra that's different from the other orchestras that you uh, conduct
10: well that's an interesting question um the levels of the musicians Um, are very similar to what I conduct here on the mainland. But what is different is more of a logistics aspect because if I'm missing, say, a harpist on the mainland, I can call one in and they can drive a few hours. But being on an island, that proposes different challenges of getting instrumentation covered because if I don't have a harpist, for example, on an island, how can I get one from another island? Is that uh, possible? So there's a different layer as far as the difference What I've found too is that musicians on the island um, also embrace it a little differently because there aren't as many opportunities as people, musicians would have, say, on the mainland. And so when we do get together, it is this ohana that comes together and it's like a reunion, but it's just like the joy, again, of why we make music is really evident with this group of musicians, I would say, compared to others.
0: Okay, yeah, far more appreciative of, of the experiences. That they have the opportunities and this is an opportunity (laughs) all right so uh we thank you for your time i know you're a a busy man uh but uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to see you when you get back on island
10: i look forward to and i look look forward to talking to you and your listeners again very soon and and um i want everyone to stay safe and enjoy the music
0: all right aloha aloha thank you That was Brian Dollinger, a very jazz conductor who we caught up with just before he went into a rehearsal. The season of the Camoella Philharmonic Orchestra begins October 3rd. Look for links about the youth competition on our website later today. That's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Honolulu Council Chair Tommy Waters. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. Missed something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.